I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Pack your sandals. Get your sunscreen out. We're going on a plant holiday. You know, you've got cottage gardens, you've got tropical gardens, formal garden, a Moroccan garden. The choices are limitless, really. When I go out there and sit on the garden bench, truthfully, I could be in Ibiza. I made an expedition to Borneo, which was somewhere that I always wanted to visit because it really is a, a botanical paradise. Barbados loves palms. I have golden palms and thatch palm and arafis palm, aloe vera. To peer into the largest flower in the world is really an experience without compare. I'm Catherine Potsides, Head of Shows Development, and this is Gardening with the RHS. As we're well into summer now, I think it's the perfect time for a much-needed break. Because our travel options have been rather limited this year, in this episode I wanted to whisk you away on a horticultural holiday instead. We're sailing over to the Mediterranean, jetting off to Borneo, but we're starting today on an island paradise in Barbados. The Caribbean island nation is home to shimmering turquoise bays, awesome nightlife and of course some absolutely spectacular plants. Sally Miller is a member of the Barbados Horticultural Society, a group who've exhibited at Chelsea Flower Show a whopping 28 times. They've earned 20 gold medals, 7 silver gilts and 1 silver medal. Let's head over to Barbados to meet Sally and some of her noisy neighbours. That is actually a whistling frog. It's a little rainy in Barbados today. Um, Yes, along with the lovely smells that come out at night, so does the whistling frog. They're interesting because they're the only frog in the world with no tadpole stage. They pop straight out of a little white egg. And they adore ferneries and lovely cool, damp places. And they are what you can hear talking to me. I'm sitting in my outdoor patio in Barbados on the east coast. And I'm completely surrounded by plants, as a matter of fact. This part of our garden is very much foliage. I have a lot of eranthemums. I have a huge sea grape, cocolobo. Palms, of course. Barbados loves palms. I have golden palms and thatch palm and arafis palm, aloe vera. 
it's a full tropical environment here in Barbados and everything tropical grows well. Probably one of the most satisfying things about gardening in the tropics, of course, is the speed that things grow and the size they grow to. So they comment quite often by visitors when they see a croton, for instance, which is a house plant in England. It's 10 times the size here and not only the size of the plant, but of course the size of the actual leaves and they're spectacular. So a lot of the colour in tropical gardens is the foliage. But of course there are spectacular colourful blooms such as the ginger lily and all the different kinds of gingers. We have torch gingers, of course beautiful orchids and the hummingbirds love these flowers. So wherever there are heliconias blooming you'll find hummingbirds nesting and flitting and getting their steady supply of food. We have heliconias. I find the most common comment about heliconias is that people say, oh, bird of paradise. So it is very, very different from a strelitzia bird of paradise, but that is what people think of. We take about 30 different varieties of heliconias to Chelsea, but one year we did some red heliconias in fish pots and everybody said oh I love the lobsters in the fish pots so think of lobster claws when the moon comes out in Barbados the scents in the garden come alive and we have some Brunselsia which is the gentleman of the night and night blooming water lilies and um, the frangipani plumeria they have a gorgeous scent. Well, I would have to say I started gardening as a child. Barbadians are avid gardeners. My grandmother was a gardener and my great aunt and, and then my mother and aunt. You know, from a young child, I spent time in a garden, happy times. And then, yeah, when I got my own home, as time allowed, of course, as you get older, you find more and more time for gardening and indeed more and more pleasure in it. We have a wide variety of tropical food with a large market in town, Cheapside. And, and there again, food grows year round. Some of the things that might interest listeners would be things like the breadfruit, um, which was bought here as a good source of food from the Polynesian islands. And um, they certainly keep hunger from many a door. It's um, football sized fruit and it grows on an enormous tree. It's very similar to the potato, and we eat it in all different ways, pickled and in butter sauce, and we make a thing called a cuckoo, which is basically mashed breadfruit. But we also have um, interesting fruit in Barbados, mangoes and golden apples, sugar apples, and enormous avocados. They would be the size of a um, rugby ball, but of course pear-shaped. In terms of growing plants from Barbados in the UK, I mean, I think you can do miracles in, in the British greenhouses. I've seen just about everything, I think, in that spectacular greenhouse at Wisley, which I had the pleasure of visiting. In fact, I think when you look at the gardens here, just about everything is available in a tenth of the size as a houseplant. Anthuriums and crotons. Mm -hmm. 
my aunt did the first exhibit that the Barbados put on at the Chelsea Flower Show in 1984, and it was just an enormous arrangement of red gingers. Four years later, then the Barbados Horticultural Society went, and um, they've been going ever since. Chelsea really represents Barbados and what we are all about. So we've done cricket, we've done rum, we've done a coral reef. And in fact, the plan for the next one is a coral reef because that's another part of our plant life, you know, above ground, but also below the sea, with sea fans and corals and, you know, beautiful coral gardens. Sally Miller speaking to us from Barbados. As head of shows development at the RHS, I'm really familiar with the Society's incredible tropical displays. It's fantastic when they visit us each year at Chelsea Flower Show and they bring such extraordinary plants and ideas to the great pavilion at the show. And it's amazing teamwork seeing them put together these exotic plants for everyone to enjoy. Fantastic bromeliads and amazing torch gingers. It really is such a fantastic sight. But now, from an island bursting with some of the most beautiful blooms to the largest flower in the world, it's probably not a plant you'd be tempted to have in your own garden. But to learn more, you're going to need your rucksacks and raincoats as we head into the steamy forests of Borneo. Our guide today is Dr Chris Thurgood, Head of Science at Oxford Botanic Garden and Arboretum, and he's a huge fan of a rather large flower. I'm going to tell you a love story about a plant that you might not expect. One of my favourite plants is called Rafflesia. It really is a bit of a vegetable vampire of a plant. It actually produces the largest flower in the world and it grows in the rainforests of Southeast Asia. It steals all of its food from the roots of other plants, so it's a pilfering parasite. It grows actually within the tissues of its so-called host plant, so it lives inside another plant for most of its life, and you can think of it as sort of stealing its energy from the other plant, rather like taking electricity from the grid undetected because the host plant doesn't know it's in there. It sort of gathers up this energy that it steals from the other plant and then eventually it bursts through the rainforest floor as this giant flower that can be over a meter across. It's not pleasant in that it smells revolting to attract pollinating flies because it's a very rare flower. And so in order to ensure that it can be pollinated, it produces these giant flowers that broadcast this terrible smell far and wide to attract flies that mistake the flower for a rotting carcass. The smell really is dreadful. It, it smells exactly like rotting flesh. That's really interesting. There's something about these flowers that have evolved to attract flies because it's not just Rafflesia, there are others. And the mimicry that they've perfected, it really does smell terrible. There are others that smell of dung. So some of your listeners 
might know a plant called Arum Italicum or Italian Lords and Ladies and it's grown sometimes in shady parts of the garden for its beautiful foliage but it flowers in sort of late May early June time and I would tempt you to go and have a look at these flowers on a warm evening and you might notice that they smell quite strongly of horse dung to attract those little midges that you find teeming around manure because those are what pollinate the flowers. So there is a darker side to the plant kingdom out there. So <laughs> this might not be what you expect for someone's favourite plant, but I did say I always like weird plants. And there's something so mysterious and enigmatic about this flower, the fact that we're not able to grow it. So little is understood about the plant's biology. And this flower has been a, a sort of source of lifelong fascination for me. They're a sort of orangey brown colour, mottled and covered in warts. They're really not the most attractive of flowers, to be honest. I don't know why I'm, why I'm drawn to unusual and weird plants. I just know that I am. So I've always loved the particularly ugly plants, whether it's Aristolochias, carnivorous plants. Well, to me, they're not ugly, but I know some people think they are. There's just something about them that I think they're curious and in their own way, they're beautiful. So you can't grow your own Rafflesia, sadly, but there are almost sort of similar things you can grow. So the closest I can think of off the top of my head is a succulent called Stapelia or Stapelia. It's a Southern African genus of succulents and they're quite easy to grow. They can be a bit difficult to get hold of, but specialist succulent nurseries will stock them for sure. And they produce these giant starfish-like flowers and they're sometimes called starfish flowers. They do also smell horrible, I'm afraid to say, so you might want to banish them to the greenhouse when they come into bloom. But the flowers are really extraordinary and you'll be sure to surprise and impress your neighbours if you were to grow one of these on your windowsill. There's one called Stapelia gigantea that produces these flowers that really are about the size of a dinner plate and shaped like a starfish. They're quite extraordinary. So when I was in my early 20s, I made an expedition to Borneo, which was somewhere that I always wanted to visit because it really is a, a botanical paradise. It's an island in Southeast Asia that really has a flora without compare. So if you visit, you must go to Mount Kinabalu, which is a mountain in the north of the island where these giant pitcher plants grow. And in the foothills around the mountain, that's where Rafflesia grows, which produces this giant flower over a meter across. Now, I remember that was where I first encountered Rafflesia. And really to stand in the hot, humid rainforest with the sound of all the insects, a truly immersive experience, and to peer into the largest flower in the world is really an experience without compare. Dr. Chris Thorogood. I absolutely love the variety that gardening offers. And although his adventures sound really exciting, my favourite type of plant is definitely one for a drier climate. I'm lucky to have a hot garden that loves Mediterranean plants, but I have lots of different spaces for different things. And each year can add new pots of vegetables or plants collected from around the world. And I love the variety of plants that are available in our climate and researching the environments that suit them best and testing them out in my own space. 
I always thought it would be great to represent different places through plants and adventures to different countries in my outdoor space. From a tropical paradise to a tranquil Japanese theme, it's possible to imagine a trip around the world without even leaving your own back garden. And I know just the man to help. My name's Danny Clark. I'm also known as the Black Gardener. Some people might know me as the Instant Gardener on the telly. Danny's here to tell us where to start when it comes to dividing your garden into distinct sections. You know, you've got cottage gardens, you've got tropical gardens, formal garden, a Moroccan garden. You could even have a child-safe garden. The choices are limitless, really. You know, you're only constricted by your imagination. So whatever you want in that garden, in that space, is virtually doable. It's entirely up to you. You don't want to see where the garden starts or ends. I don't really want to see any fence or a wall. I want to festoon the boundary with as many plants as possible. And also try as much as possible to bring the planting into the garden. And you do that by the way you shape the garden. And a great way to do that is by creating, if you like, garden rooms. You actually create a little bit of a journey and you can create a little bit of mystery because what you're doing is you're sectioning parts of it off and the mind is saying or asking, what's over there because I can't see it? So it's what you don't see that creates the illusion of space. So you're going to ask me how I do that. Yeah, is that the next question? So I would do that by hedging. Now it's up to you how high or how low you want that hedging. So a couple of good examples might be to use yew or box. Another thing you could use is trellising or screens to block off the view or a fence, a low fence, maybe a wicker fence, you know, something that will interlock. In fact, this is another little gardening design trick for creating rooms is if you can get that garden to go from side to side. That actually forces you to plant in such a way that certain areas are naturally blocked off from your view. When I say side to side, I want to go on a journey. I want to explore the whole of that garden, if possible. So what's the best way to do it? It's by having a path. It might be a grass path. It doesn't have to be a solid path, but I want that garden to take me on a journey. And I don't want to go in a straight line. I don't want to get from A to B in the quickest way possible. I want that path to slow me down so I can observe what's going on in my space. If you just imagine I'm walking through the space and I'm going towards the back gate, that's the most direct route. But if I had to go left, for a couple of meters, then walk in a straight line, and then go right by, say, three meters, and then walk back in a straight line. Do you see the effect that's creating? You're naturally creating little pockets for planting on either side. Because what I'm actually doing is blocking off somewhere along that line, where I've gone left, and then gone straight, and then gone back right for three meters, towards that gate. If I put plants, tallish plants, in that space that's created, I'm blocking off that view to that gate. And by doing that, 
I'm giving the impression that the garden's bigger than it is because you can't see that gate. You don't know where it starts. Three top tips. Well, the first tip is pencil and paper. Draw your ideas out first. Don't make it up as you go along, not unless you're very experienced. It's not to say that when you come to implement the design that you have to stick to it. You can still be flexible and change your mind, etc., etc. But I think a good starting point is always to put pencil to paper. Here's a really good one, I think. Reflect your taste and not someone else's. I mean, for example, in your, in your home, you might have a yellow wall. Why not reflect that yellow in the garden? So you're linking your indoor space with the exterior of the property and vice versa. And that will give the illusion of making your garden and your inside living area seem bigger than it actually is. And what's the third one? That's three, that was two. <laughs> oh, another one, I think great tip. Don't be frightened of colours. People can be very conservative when it comes to colour. And colour is a great way of linking areas. So you've got a horrible tired concrete patio. Why not give it a jet wash, a power wash, and maybe apply some paint to it? That way you can give it a bit of va va voom. So, you know, make most of it. So Danny mentioned setting your ideas free and embracing colour. So what about a Mediterranean patch? A region known for its silver foliage, striking cypresses and picture postcard palms. Mediterranean inspiration can really add some much needed drama into all our plots. I've seen many a Mediterranean inspired garden in my time working on RHS shows. Sarah Eberly's vibrant Chelsea garden in 2011 for Monaco featured blues and oranges, the vibrant blue of the Echium to the GM Totally Tangerine, not to forget those amazing orange citrus plants. By contrast, James Basson's amazing Mediterranean garden featuring a quarry landscape from Malta in 2017 won best in show with its beautiful, resilient planting palette that showed just how tough and strong some plants of this region can be. Journalist and gardener Patty Barron loves all things Mediterranean and has written a fantastic book on the subject. The Mediterranean garden I'm talking about isn't about the grand Riviera gardens, but it's more the countryside that grows around those. It's about the Maquis and the Garrigue, where the plants grow wild amongst the rocks and stones, where there's intoxicating scents of rosemaries and lavenders. It's a very casual, carefree kind of a garden where you... Because the plants are mulched with gravel, you can wander in and amongst the plants. There's no pathways, no lawn. It's very low maintenance. There's no weeding, no staking, no watering or feeding. It's a very seductive garden. It sizzles with vivid colours. It's alive with bees and butterflies. And you come out of it smelling gorgeous. My love of med gardening comes inevitably from childhood holidays southern Italy, south of France, Ibiza, just wandering around amongst the countryside and going down those little alleyways in those charming little towns where they have uh, geranium studding the walls 
and the little front gardens as such are just crammed with colour. You might want to just say for this summer, just instantly conjure up the spirit of the Mediterranean, you know, or any place where you have your garden table and chairs on hard standing. So basically we're talking containers. You've got to set the scene. What backdrop do you have? Do you have a brick house wall? Think of painting over it, quite simple, in a light reflecting shade like white, maybe a pale rose pink, an apricot or palest blue. You could range your pots on the wall, just like they do in Mediterranean countries. There's an online company called Spanish Rings that have black rings that you just screw into the wall and then drop the pots into that. Looks very authentic. Then look at the flooring you have. Something like large regulation paving stones, for instance. Those aren't very Mediterranean. But you could cheat by throwing down a layer of gravel. So you have an immediate Mediterranean type flooring. And then you can then add, just for fun, uh, the occasional coloured stones or mosaic chips, maybe fragments of tiles or, or even those florist marbles you can get. They look like coloured glass pebbles, just to glint here and there in the sunlight. Then look at your garden furniture. Maybe give that a lick of sunny colour. Add some pretty stripy cushions. And then an outdoor rug that really sets the atmosphere. So shall we look at plants? Why not get hold of several cheapest chips terracotta flower pots? The ones that, you know, they're like all the same size and you find them at the garden centre Please, not plastic pots, they just don't cut it because terracotta is the great unifier. And then plant one bedding geranium in each. Red, cerise, any of those lovely clashing colours, they all look good together. And then just finish by topping them with grit to give them a neat finish. And that also helps keep moisture in the compost. RHS do bags of alpine grit that you can find at the garden centre, that, that that grit is the perfect size. And then just range those pots in a row on the patio or group them on either side of the garden bench. They look so effective. The next thing you can do is go to the herbs section of the garden centre. And especially look out for prostrate rosemary because that's a charming tumbling rosemary that looks really good cascading from a large pot or an urn that looks very authentic. Maybe you could find a bougainvillea in the houseplant section that spells Mediterranean like nothing else, but it does need a spot with no wind. A plant called Lantana camara is a great draw for butterflies, and that has kind of dolly mixture flowers in pinks and yellows. And also consider succulents in those wonderful greys and silvers. Those need no watering at all. And I think as a final touch, a pot of basil, which you can buy at the supermarket, on the garden table makes a great finishing touch and of course you must have it dropped into a terracotta pot. Everything I've said you can really do in just a weekend, trust me, I know, because I've done it and I'm very happy with the result and I know you will be too. It's great to hear that you can put Patty's tips into action over just a weekend. For more information and exotic gardening inspiration, 
head over to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. I'm sad to say it's time to head back to the imaginary airport, maybe with a quick dash through duty-free to grab some souvenirs. I'll see you on the other side, back in the garden. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Catherine Potsides. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.